Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masech Mikila, daf Yudtet, page 19. Well, we have two Mishnahs on this uh, daf, and I'm going to do the first one, and we'll do the second one. And the first one begins like this. Ben ir shehalach l'kriach, uben krach shehalach l'ir, im atilach zor l'mekomo, korek l'mekomo, v'im lav korek imahen. So this deals with a very uh, interesting halachic situation, one that I actually encountered once, which I'll explain in a minute. But it's about a resident of an unwalled city or town who goes to a walled city. So in other words, the resident of the unwalled city would normally observe Purim on Yud Dalet Adar. They go to a walled city where the Megillah is going to be read on the 15th and Adar. Or the reverse, a resident of a walled city goes where, where Purim's observed on the 15th of Adar, goes to an unwalled town where it's read on the 14th, right? If he's going to return to his original place, meaning generally say if, you know, his intention is to go back to his original place, right, when that when Purim is going to be observed, he reads according to his place. But if not, if he's basically going to be there for the entirety of Purim and not uh, going to return, then he has to observe it. Now, this actually happened to me once, uh, one year I was living in Jerusalem, my husband and I were living in Jerusalem, and we were flying to the United States on the night of Yudalid. So we actually had to find um, a minion that was sort of, well, a Megillah reading, I should say, not a minion, a Megillah reading that was on the outskirts of Jerusalem for, uh, it was also for non-Jerusalem residents um, who, for whatever reason, wanted to read Megillah quickly, because remember, you fast, and so it was sort of the end of the workday. So they wanted to read uh, Megillah, and then they would go to wherever it is that they were going. In other words, it was for people who wanted to observe it as Yodalit. Then we went straight to the airport, flew, and then read Megillah the next morning um, in, uh, read Megillah the next morning uh, in Boston, where we were for the rest of the holiday. Uh, so, you know, so that's kind of the idea. Like, our intention was we knew that we were sort of going to end up in a Yudalit place, so we had to observe it as a Yudalit holiday. Whereas had we been living in Jerusalem, then it would have been, uh, or had the intention to spend Purim there, we would have done it on Tetvav on the 15th. Uh, then it goes on and continues, Korea <laughs> So uh, now it gets into an interesting discussion. Almost feels like this could be a separate Mishnah, which is from what part does a person have to read in order to fulfill his obligation of reading uh, the um, the Megillah? In other words, do you have to read the whole Megillah, part of the Megillah? So Rabbi Meir Omer Kula. Rabbi Meir says you have to read the whole Megillah. Rabbi Hud Omer Me Ishu Di. Rabbi Meir says no, you just have to read from the Pasuk Ishu Di, which is from Megillah Esther chapter two, verse five. Rabbi Yosef says from the following Pasuk, which is uh, chapter 3, verse 1. So um, very, very interesting, you know, end of the Gemara. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I want to think a little bit there about what it's talking about. In other words, why is it that there's sort of this discussion um, about where do you have to, where do you read from? And so later on, the Gemara says as follows, Mehechan kore adam Tanya, they quote a Brisa here, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Omer, Mi So now we have a fourth opinion, which is different than what's in the Mishnah, that is one of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that says, Mi which is actually much later in the Megillah, which is chapter six, verse one. That's the chapter when Achashverosh sort of can't sleep at night and says that Mordechai should be dressed in the, in the Levush Machut. Um, and then we get two interesting opinions here. We're going to get two Amorayim who come, who explain 
how do we get to these four different opinions? In other words, where do we get to these opinions from? So Amar Rabbi Yochanan, so Rabbi Yochanan says the following, they all learn this from explaining the same pasuk. And here they quote a pasuk from Esther, chapter 9, verse 29. Esther, the queen, and Mordechai, the Jew, wrote about all the acts of power. Okay, and so the question basically is, What's the tokef? What's the act of power? The one who says you have to read the whole Megillah, it's talking about the power of Ahasuerus. The one who says from Mordechai, it's the power of Mordechai. The one who says after these things, it's the power of Haman. And the one who says, but that fourth opinion, it's the power of the nace. So in other words, it's taking it all from the same pasuk, but it's what does this word tokef mean? And there's different ways, right? It's either Achashverosh, it's either Mordechai, it's either Haman, or it's the nace itself. Now, it's interesting that some of the first three of those opinions, uh, well, two of them, at least the Achashverosh and the Haman one, it's not good power, right? It's just the power of Achashverosh and Haman, whereas the Mordechai nace one is sort of what I would say like positive power or the way we want it to be in the story. Rav Huna uses a different pasuk. Rav Huna amar mehacha umarau al kacha umahi gia ale umarau al kacha umahi gia alehem. So Rav Huna says it's from this pasuk, right? This is Esther chapter nine verses twenty six and twenty seven, which says of that which they saw concerning this matter, right? Um, right, umarau what they saw al kacha of this matter. Right, umahigialeim, that which befell them, and so now he also goes through these four opinions. Umans amar kula, the one who says kula, mara achashverosh nishtamish ba kelim shel beit hamikdash. The mara refers to achashverosh using the kelim of the beit hamikdash, which is the first chapter. Al kacha mishum dechishiv shivim shenim velo ipruk. Right, uh, concerning what that the seventy years of the exile had passed. And B'nai Yisrael were not redeemed. We've talked about this previously in a previous episode. Right, what, what befell them was that Vashti was killed. So again, these are all things that happen in that first chapter. So that's why he would say Kula. The one who says Right, what did he see? That Mordechai acted zealously with Haman. Right, Concerning the matters because Haman made himself an object of idol worship, Nisa. And what had befallen them refers to the miracle that took place. Now the third opinion, the one who says from Paragimel, right, the Mara refers to Haman Haman who was jealous of all the Jews. Al Mordechai, Lo Concerning what? That Mordechai did not bow. Uh, prostrate himself, you know, didn't w- worship idols. Right? Uh, and what befell them, it refers to Haman and his sons being hung. And finally, the last opinion, right? The the, the what was seen that Achashverosh knew to bring the book of remembrance. Right? What is concerning what? That Esther invited Haman along with Ahasuerus, to the Su'uda, right? And which befell them is the, is the Megillah. So the second and third opinion um, have the same, um, both, invoke, both invoke the nace there. So I think it's an interesting sort of using a pasuk 
to sort of explain how do they decide which pasuk you have to read, um, that you actually have to read, um, that you actually have to read from. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, so I thought that that was, uh, that was very interesting. The last thing I want to point out on this stuff is they also bring down a halacha here that if you read a Megillah that was part of a scroll that all of Ketuvim was written, it's not a, it's not a good reading. In other words, you have to read from a scroll that's only the Megillah itself. You can use a scroll. It clarifies it by saying if the Megillah portion is sort of short or longer or something like that, but you're actually not allowed to, you, you, that's not a Megillah that you can use. Um, so, you know, I think some like, we see here sort of the status of the Megillah itself is a, the, the activity of reading the Megillah is a little bit different. You know, we're really thinking here about, there are other things that we read, but this is really the one book that we read, very different than any of the other Megillot or even Parshio. Yes, you have to hear Zachor, but it's just three Psukim, right? That, you know, here there's really a lot of attention paid to, like, what's the piece of the story that you have to hear? And the second is even the physical cloth, the physical Megillah itself has to be distinguished also. Okay, um, I think there's a lot going on there that I think is um, both rich in terms of the narrative and then rich also in terms of the practice where we go with it. I want to jump now to the second Mishnah, um, which is actually very brief and perhaps a little bit difficult. Hakol k'sherin likrot et Everybody is fit, is kosher to read the Megillah. And of course, there's commentary here talking about for whom is everybody fit to read the Megillah? Because on the one hand, Everybody is fit to read the Megillah, but maybe, and certainly according to some commentaries and halachic authorities, women should not be reading for men. It depends on what you say the mitzvah is. Is it to hear? Is it to read? And so on, which is far beyond the scope of the words of the Mishnah, but it's also very much implicit in the words of the Mishnah. And then it goes on to say, right, it said, if everybody is um, fit to read, we're going to now have some ex- exceptions. Chutz shota except for, and we'll talk about what this means, the definitions here, a deaf person, a shota is a, a somebody who has some kind of, I don't know, intellectual cognitive impairment. I mean, not just some kind of, a significant one. And then katan is a minor, somebody who's under, the, it's a just debate over how old a katan is for this kind of purpose, um, but certainly, uh, certainly under the age of mitzvot, meaning under 12 or 13 for a girl or a boy. Rabbi Yudah Machshir Bakatan, and Rabbi Huda disagrees and says that, no, no, a minor is fit to read the Megillah, and that's its own discussion. Um, I want to address here the question of Cheresh. We have talked about Cheresh in the past and recognize that for the most part, when the Gemara, or a Mishnah for that matter, is using the term Cheresh, it's a specific technical term uh, for those who, in that era, who were deaf and mute and were very often... Um, not disconnected from communication, which was a really difficult thing, obviously. Um, and and the treatment there was, you know, to what extent is somebody who is deaf and mute cognitively impaired? And anybody who knows that Helen Keller, who was also blind for that matter, graduated from Radcliffe, knows that we don't have to worry about the cognition side of things in our definitions today. But it's not so clear from the time of the of the Mishnah, except for one thing commentaries here point out that the cheresh in this case cannot be a deaf mute because a deaf mute somebody who is mute forget about the deaf part of it somebody who's mute is not in the category of reading from the megillah right the issue here of calling somebody cheresh somebody here is deaf without being mute meaning the person cannot hear 
his own voice. He cannot regulate his own voice in that context. And it, it poses a, a difficulty. This is perhaps why the Mishnah excludes the Cheresh, but it seems to be pretty clear, at least according to the commentaries, that the the question of cognitive ability here is removed from the discussion because the presumption is that somebody has the intellectual cognitive ability, in fact, to read the Megillah, except for not the voice to... Um, and I'm sorry, has the voice to do so and the cognitive ability to do so, but simply could not hear himself read, which is its own, again, it's, a, it's own conundrum. Um, in the Rushalmi, the Rushalmi treats the same person as a Kherish like all the other Kherishim. And then the question is, you know, why would it, the, the commentary question is, you know, why would it be here? Why would the term of a deaf mute be in this Mishnah? And the question then is, both, I think, are answered um, of the placement in this Mishnah that Chere Shotavakatan is a threesome for many discussions of who is obligated and how. So the phrasing of Chere Shotavakatan applies here to say, well, it just kind of got included with the Shota and Katan side of things if you want to take the Yerushalmi's approach. Or you can look at it and say, well, it's not the regular cheresh, but the phrasing always puts the cheresh together with the shota and katan. So here, even though the reasoning is different, meaning it's because of literally not being able to hear, and if the mitzvah is to hear the Megillah as opposed to reading it out loud, it becomes even more problematic. Um, I know I'm a little bit talking around it, but the issue here is, let's, the, the key point here is to recognize that the cheresh, by virtue of being able to read the Megillah, is not mute, is not the usual concern of the stereotypical cognitive imp impediment of the Kherish back in the day. And it is nonetheless phrased here as if it's the same grouping because that is the classical grouping here. Okay, the Gemara goes on to say, well, who are we talking about here? Uh, or who, whose opinion is this, rather? Man Tana Kherish de Avad Namilo, right? Who is the Tana who said, who taught this, that, the, that when a deaf person would read, that it would be um, not valid. And the key term here in the Gemara is di'avad, meaning it's already been done. What would happen if you, if a deaf person who cannot hear himself read read the Megillah and you listening, like, could does that count? Does it count for him, even though he can't hear? Does it count for you who can hear, you know, in the public reading, let's say? Amar of Matna, Rabbi So the question here, of course, was whose opinion is the Mishnah? And the answer is, Rav Matna says, Matana says that it was Rabbiosi. How do we know this? Because we have a Mishnah elsewhere. It's not Hakore at Shema, Yatsa. We have a very strong statement about Kriyat Shema, the mitzvah of reading Shema, um, where somebody who reads Shema out loud and cannot hear it in his own ears nonetheless fulfills his obligation. And it's Rabbi Yossi who said that person does not fulfill his obligation. So then it makes sense to say that this Mishnah is in accord with Rabbi Yossi because it's the same situation of reading and the reader not being able to hear it. But presumably the other opinion would say, yes, he should, be, should fulfill his own obligation, right? At the very least his own. Um, okay. And now the Gemara is going to really ask some sharp questions on the Mishnah. So, you know, where do we get the fact that this whole Mishnah, again, that it's really going to be the opinion of Rabbi Yossi, and that he would also say, that he would agree that after the fact, it would not be okay. Maybe after the fact, it would be okay. 
Maybe the Gemara is really, maybe the mission is really according to the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. How would that be? Meaning, according to Rabbi Yehuda, the Diavad situation, meaning the, the person who cannot hear has read the Megillah and is therefore, after the fact, uh, fulfills the obligation, is really different than whether you start out with a blank slate, nobody's read the Megillah yet that day, who are you going to choose? And the difference there, according to Rabbi Yehuda, According to Rabbi Huda, we would say that he should not do it lechatchila. But if if he did do it, then after the fact, yes, he fulfilled the obligation. And so then the Gemara doesn't like that. Lo don't think this. And here, this business of the language of whether cheresh means the usual deaf mute cheresh versus the cheresh that that all the, the commentaries I saw said is distinct in this particular Mishnah, it, it clouds the issue. Because if you want to say that because the Shota and the Katan are together with the Cheresh, so therefore the same way that the Shota and the Katan can't, after the fact, be fulfill the obligation, so then you want to say that the Cheresh also can't because isn't this a group? This triumvirate is always together. Except for the Gemara says, well, maybe that's not really true. Maybe they're not really equivalent. Because it really is a different case. Meaning maybe these are different. Like this is that it is, and this is that it is. Which is idiomatic, but certainly draws the distinction between the cases. At the end of the Mishnah, it says, The moment you say that Rabbi Yehuda is the one talking at the end of the Mishnah, then why would you think that Rabbi Yehuda is the one talking at the beginning of the Mishnah, meaning, and perhaps then the distinction between lechatchila uh, and bidiyeved, right, that is done, you know, in an ideal way or only after the fact, um, where the question of whether the cheresh can read and fulfill his obligation, perhaps Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, or we'll say strongly, that Rabbi Yehuda, it does not make sense to say that Rabbi Yehuda is the beginning voice of the Mishnah, when he's named as a dissenting voice at the end of the Mishnah. Um, so then, so then, you know, it works out to say that it's not Rabbi Yehuda. Um, and the Gemara goes on to say, well, maybe the whole thing was Rabbi Yehuda, but this is why it would be Rabbi Yehuda at the end. I think that's really a little bit of a difficult kind of finding of, of how, how we identify the, the speakers within a Mishnah. Um, but in any case, the, at the end of the day, really, the question is, um, what do you do with this person, who a deaf person who can speak but cannot hear? So I'm jumping down now towards the very end of the daf. Elahad Tani, Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi, So this is our case. A deaf person, meaning one who cannot hear but does speak, or and does speak, and does not hear, Toreim lechatchila mani, Right, so then he, that same person can set aside truma. We're going back to the kind of temple mitzvot, right? Um, this person would set aside truma, even lechatchila, meaning even in the ideal fashion. And who said that? E Rabbi Yehuda, diavad in lechatchila lo. If you say that it's the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, because again, that's really the the all of this discussion is couched in a, a investigation of who said what. Um, but if it was Rabbi Yossi, then even after the fact, you cannot do it. So, but we seem to say that he can do it, meaning 
that the deaf person who can hear, no, who can speak, would be able to give truma, which at the end of the day brings us back around to say, well, then it would seem that he in fact could read and at the very least, diavad, after the fact, fulfill his obligation. Um, I think the Gemara dives in um, kind of to the side measure. Who's, whose opinion is this? Rather than get to the meat of it of like, what does it mean for a, a deaf person who can speak to be to fulfill his obligation or to not, which I think is the more interesting question. And and I, I feel like maybe it's intentional that they're kind of sidestepping. I don't know. I don't know how common it was for somebody to be able to speak but also be deaf. Meaning nowadays we think that's very common. But then when the cheresh, the standard cheresh, was someone who also couldn't speak, so then was this an unusual case and why aren't they spent? I don't know. I want them to spend more time saying, but he can speak. So, you know, he he's there like with Kavana for the mitzvah, right? Like, but they don't. But I, that's what I want them to do.